Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. What is that? That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home. They never go home. They never go home, those, those, those boys. And I said, I want to win the league, but I want to win it better. You can understand that, can't you? Yes. Good lad. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. <laughs> second captain, first captain, whatever. You're very welcome along to a special Christmas edition of the show today, which we've decided to call the second captains at the Irish Times Christmas Sports Pudding. Pudding. Not to be confused with their show coming out later this week, which will be called the St. Stephen's Day Turkey Sports Sandwich. Yeah, obviously. This is the pudding. And this is just great, Murph. Here we are on a bunch of horses, I think. And uh, Ken's on a reindeer. I thought it sounded reindeers, but I'm I'm not entirely sure. Uh, Either way, we're on a sled. It's a sled. It's a sleigh. We're through the snow in the Carpathian Mountains here on the way to Castle Dracula. Oh, what's this? We, we pulled up to our Christmas home. Might as well just... Our Christmas, but of course we spent... A light, the we, we spend Christmas animals together every year. We'll get into this warm fire in here. It's so cold. That oh. well, that, that's actually... That's actually For some reason, nice there's, a, there's a massive furnace burning in this yeah. rather small house. really shouldn't have done that. We haven't been here for the last 365 days. Who, who's Leaving that a fire burning, like that's a really there. bad idea. Not only that, who's that looking very cosy over on the couch? Hey, I'm Mariah Carey. Merry Christmas to everybody out there all over the world. Have a beautiful, peaceful, wonderful, happy holidays. Merry Christmas, Mariah. Merry Christmas, Mariah. Uh, Mariah. Christmas, Mariah. Great, she, great to be here. She says that every day. Well, yeah, but, you know, she's a very festive person, you know. Oftentimes you, w- you, you would hope for Christmas 365 days a year. Mariah, what would you like for Christmas this year? Go on, just tell me. This takes ages. Yes, four. Yes, yes. A nice book? Spain by Graham Hunter? Oh. Mm. Same every year. She's not even looking at any of the three of us, though. I mean, it's a bit weird. I had a. I don't know if I'll tone down the fire here or just keep it burning. It doesn't matter, Mary. I, I had to listen back. Burning, keep it burning. Though. I had to listen back to our very first show, very first second half yeah. of the Irish Sorry, Times. Sorry, can, can I just put the fire guard up? Because it sounds yeah. like yeah. these wood fires. May fourteenth this year. I just wanted to get a snapshot of the sporting landscape on that day. Our first broadcast. Roberto Mancini had just been sacked as Man City manager mm-hmm. the night before. Richie Sadler was on. He's speaking on air for the first time about the sad passing of his dog Frank and his oh. failed attempt to replace Frank with a three-year-old Newfoundland called Zeus. Half a bear, as described by Richie. <laughs> um, so that didn't really work out. I don't know if Richie has, has tried with women. The half dog he could handle. It's yeah. just the, the half bear. Yeah, our first guests Richie. were Jerry Thorney and Shane Horgan, but our first interview was conducted by Simon Hick. He went no. off to chat to Joe Schmidt, uh, just ahead of the Amnon and Rabo finals, and Ken was still riding high after his triumphant appearance on Vincent Brown to discuss the retirement of Alex Ferguson. In the, um, the Sun, they have a great, great cover in the Sun, the hairdryer uh, with which uh, Alex Ferguson was famously associated. He threw a hairdryer, I think, at David Beckham. Uh, in the, is that right? No. Who was he to throw the hairdryer at? The hairdryer is, is a metaphor for the, for the current of uh, hot air generated by a furious blast of temper. Oh, just a boot he threw it There's all kinds of stories about what happened to David Beckham. I mean, there was, a, you know, Ferguson said he kicked a boot. Maybe he did. 
Uh, there was a, there was other stories about it, but it wasn't hair dryer. Oh, sorry, I thought I always thought that he threw a hair dryer at David Beckham, which I thought was quite appropriate. Um, <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah. Slight, slight bit of judicious editing at the very end there. <laughs> yeah. But you're quite that was actually the whole thing. No, well, yeah. We just, we just we've heard we've heard that quite, yeah, we've heard that quite a lot since as part mm. of the. That was basically all you said on that show as well. Yeah. I mean, did it, they don't really leave a whole lot of time for you guys when they ask you to appear on Vince. Well, Martin. I haven't been asked for many a long year, Murph. Well, remember the time you went on and he, he, you actually said three words. <laughs> That's a very good story, Vincent. That's all the time we have on tonight with Vincent. The problem Although is... There was, wasn't there another time as well when you went on to do the papers but ended up as one of the main the pundits show, yeah. pontificating on the, the, trade the affairs unions. of the day? Yeah. The convention centre just... The convention. <laughs> what about the trade union, son? <laughs> you know, yeah, that was Well, I'm happening. sure you, you know plenty about the trade But you know in those situations it's quite tricky because sometimes there might be a tragic story and... Vincent says this is a tragic story, and the next guest says it's a tragic story. Mm. Yeah. What can you do? You can't inject any humour into that. You can't. Yeah. So take yes, it, I, I agree view. with the tragic nature of this of this story. Well, this story isn't really tragic as such. <laughs> you could get you could technical about the nature of tragedy. Yeah, I didn't. This I didn't, is, I didn't this do is, that. This is just a very I unfortunate just accident. The, I just pined for the time I was only on for five or ten seconds. Merv, I think mm-hmm. we should really. It's been a while, mm-hmm. and for the time of year that's in it, a special. Festive Pibezo? Yeah, well, should we though? Well, I think. I mean, you know, this is. It's all about the people who have. who are coming home. Well, actually, you know what? Yeah, yeah, why not? Mariah here is a big fan, so let's do it. What? Pibezo? It's a bit weird. Is that it? Yep. Okay, so it's a very. (laughs) Well, no, you you still haven't got your intro. Okay, well, I'm kind of thinking maybe we should play the intro then. And maybe you shouldn't be living here! Happy holidays to everybody. God bless. Keep the faith. Be strong. Hey, you're a real Irishman. You get the potato I left in your dressing room there? Yeah, the potatoes and the the Pierce Brosnan and Emergent shout out. We paid him extra for that. You heard that though. I mean, this is real vindication. I mean, you know, sure, his agent, his people signed off on this. They said, here, listen, go for it. But Pierce is just, he's just giving us the nod. This is like, you know, you appear in the Johnny Carson show and Johnny Carson calls you over to sit down on the couch. <laughs> you know, you've met it as a comedian. It's good happens. for Brand Brosnan, but also it's just a, a nice Christmassy thing I, to do I, from I Pierce. So. I think so. So we've already had Maria, uh, Mariah Carey and <laughs> Maria, Marie Carey. Uh, we've already had Mariah Carey and Bruce Brosnan wishing everyone a very happy Christmas. Uh, so I'm, I'm in a pretty festive frame of mind here. But uh, Morgan Buckley has been in touch. Actually, loads of, loads of people have been in touch wishing us a happy Christmas. Morgan is not, is not really one of those people. But uh, he has emailed us from uh, Cambridge. Uh, he prepared a P-Bezel sign in a photograph before the, Mo- the Maudlin College Rugby Club dinner. Uh, the original target for my P-Bezel photo was the invited guest speaker Gavin Hastings, who played for the college. But he selfishly went to watch his son play an under-8s match instead. Some people, eh? So we got filled with port and champagne at the dinner, where I was chatting about the show. There were a few scenes missing thereafter, and I woke up with this photograph with two of the maudlin old boys, whose names I don't know. The fellow on the left was the number 8 in Hastings team. I'm in the middle, so judging by the photograph, I guess that's as close as I got. So I accept this as a token of thanks for keeping me away from the god-awful bias in English sports journalism. Hopefully this unsettling loss of memory, I also don't know where this photograph was taken, provides a sprinkling of friendly banter to your morning as I remain a loyal listener, Morgan Buckley. Happy Christmas to you, Morgan. Uh, Happy Christmas, Morgan. Not sure I like the word banter. Yeah, Ken... No, I hate that word, but anyway. Ken McGannon uh, wins this festive edition of Pibeso, I think, uh, with a short message which he sent to us on Facebook. Regrettably, this missive will strive for brevity. Time constraints mean this won't be one of those excessively verbose emigrant epistles you like to encourage. Having half harangued young Horgan for a Pibeso before I'd even left the country... I thought it best to hold off haunting you for another one till I had the goods to justify it. Please find attached a, a pic of me at the ashes with an English work acquaintance called Dom uh, and Kevin K.P. Peterson, who was happy to pose for snaps during play, during the game. Oh, yeah? Uh, you could smell his complete indifference to proceedings on the field and hear exactly what he thought of the Aussie wits in the crowd who kept on his case from first ball to last. Gob like a trucker, that lad. Anyway, enough. Happy Crimble. Hate that word. To all its second captains, your online radio show pleases me more than you can imagine. Ah, I like that phrase. Uh, so keep her lit, Ken McGannon. 
Uh, Hilda Mannix. But sorry, hold on. Is there a photo of him with... Yes, there is. We'll put it up Kevin on Peterson's our... Kevin Peterson's during play. Yeah, and he's That's holding a P-Bezzle sign. It goes from strength to strength, really. I mean... Yeah, P- Kevin... Well, it kept, it's being held in front, in front of, of Kevin, Kevin Peterson. Peterson. It's amazing because... The, I don't know if you saw during... I think it might have been the first test. Kevin Peterson was called over by a member of the crowd. Mm. One of the Aussie wits referred yeah. to in that email. And a little autograph. Only in cricket can you give autographs while... During play, during, yeah. during play. So, Kevin Peterson being a good sportsman... He mm-hmm. says, yeah, no problem, I'll do that. The Aussie wit, at the very last moment, takes the autograph book away, swills a bit more beer, puts the arms in the air. All the other Aussie wits around think this is the funniest thing ever. Kevin Peterson doesn't think it's that funny. So I'm sorry, fair play to KP still. Yeah, he was... Well, falling maybe, for the same tricks. Maybe that was... Maybe this guy was the first. Maybe yeah. Ken was the first person to call him over. Uh, but loads of festive greetings from around the world. Hilda Mannix ran into Quade Cooper on a flight from Brisbane to Melbourne, and they both say Hello. Uh, Brian Murphy's in Melbourne, Australia with my wife and first child on the way in January. Missing family at home in Dublin and Tipperary. Very happy Christmas to you, Brian. Sean Pugh is in far and distant London trying to look busy in the office. Good lad. Uh, Ronan Park is in Sydney, Australia. He reckons he might not be the only person who's going to get in touch from that part of the world. He is correct. Mm. Uh, Lucas O'Callaghan is in uh, Lausanne in Switzerland. Kieran Boyle is spending Christmas in Queens in New York. Uh, Des Bishop says hello from China. Ah. Uh, Barry Swain reckons he hot whiskies. Aren't going down half as well this Christmas. What with it being 40 degrees in Sydney and all. Uh, Alan Duff was counting down the days till he flew back to Dublin from London last week. And we even got a tweet from Heathrow Airport from Evie O'Neill, who was asking for a P-Bezzle just before she returned to Cork. Mm -hmm. So we can consider that a job well done. A last minute P-Bezzle. So very happy Christmas to all of our uh, P-Bezzles, all of our uh, emigrants. Uh, who have received and welcome home to the many of you who are home in Ireland uh, maybe for the only time this year a very warm welcome home yes and or maybe for a couple of years so uh, we're glad to have you the end of May in only our third show we received a visit from Eamon Dunphy we're going to play this interview for you now you remember this Ken? yes not to be confused with the more recent interview with Eamon when he was promoting his book this was uh, just before it was the week of the Ireland, Ireland England, England game, yeah. or the England Ireland game at Wembley we wanted to talk to him about his experience as an Irishman who moved to England as a teenager and then lived there throughout his 20s how he was treated in Manchester and London in the 1960s as an Englishman as an Irishman I should say uh, in England the audio you're going to hear to kick this off ca- uh, probably captures some of the most famous moments in the history of our games against England and then into the interview with Eamon enjoy and the Gardaí gathering around there once more the face of English football was uh, left receiver one is they're ripping up uh, pieces of wood there as well and pelting them down on the guards and it really is I think the referee might have to uh, call a halt to proceedings Jack Charges will stand in the uh, Lansdowne Road Stadium down by the Wanderers position brilliant rather the referee has stopped the game 27 minutes of the match gone and the players are being taken from the pitch there you can see the misunderstanding well, once more the travelling English fans have disgraced themselves Simon's chasing it, turning it back for the goal, Hamley Allen, makes it, Hamley shoots, it's blocked, it's a goal, it's a goal, oh! And the best Charles is going for the high ball, trying to knock it down for Houtzana, goal! Allen have scored! Roy Houtz! Thornton plays it in the game towards Tony Cascarino! 1-1! In goes Quinn, yes it's there! Has he blown the final whistle? Yes, he has! And the place erupts at Stuttgart! Because Ireland has beaten England by a goal to nil. The Irish substitute, Spanish Jack Charlton. Your favourite moments, Murph? Well, we have actually, well, we've heard all of those uh, loads of times before, but the Cascarino goal. Uh, in 91 was it's just actually a brilliant Lansdowne Road moment because there was after the celebration there was of course the storming of the pitch uh, which just doesn't happen anymore you know which is obviously a crying shame but it was kind of like a Mick Galway Gordon Hamilton kind of style moment when he like dived in were Irish the supporters corner. allowed to just do that back of course then? they were of course they were there I never mean, seemed to be many repercussions no absolutely none and uh, you know in the true Lansdowne Road uh, tradition hopefully there was some close family members of Tony Cascarino that was actually storming <laughs> there was a bit of a nasty atmosphere at that game as well I mean it's obviously a 95 game which you know ended more spectacularly yeah. but um, you know I remember my uncle was at that game and talk, coming home talking about how 
um, coins being thrown at the fans, leaving the ground, the Irish fans, by the English fans. Uh, the Irish fans then responding with uh, chants based on the then popular 50-50 cashback ads. Do you remember them? Yeah. Um, the first one, something along the lines of, we don't pay no poll tax, which is a sort of humorous ribbing at the, you know, then I imagine not everybody. But the second one, we've got loads of Centex, which maybe is a little bit more... Uh, a little bit less uh, humorous. All right, well, Eamon Dunphy, I'm delighted to say, joins us on the show now. Eamon, thanks very much for popping into us. It's a pleasure to be uh, on, in the same studio as Legends. Uh, nice, <laughs> nice to be in the inner sanctum of the Irish Times also. It's indeed. Do they know I'm here? <laughs> <laughs> Tell us, we want to talk about uh, England, Ireland, obviously, but almost looking ahead to Wednesday, is there? do you get the same sort of feeling the same strength of feeling around an England-Ireland fixture? Because I know a lot of people are wondering, is that still there in this day and age? Well, it, to be honest, Alan, it was never there for me. Um, except when I was, when I was a kid. Um, we were, in 1949, when uh, Ireland became the first team to beat England on English soil uh, at Goodison Park. I was four. But growing up, like, when you're five, six, seven, that was a folk... Uh, memory for me now, but I mean at the time it was a part of folklore. We'd seen it in Pathé News, but the idea that an Irish team could go and beat England was just phenomenal in purely footballing terms, because those of us in the soccer community in Ireland, which would be in Dublin, Cork, the Garrison towns, and that would be a a, a tiny minority of people, and we would be would have been pro English, would have thought English soccer was wonderful, wouldn't have really been into the um, English-hating stuff, mm. and I never really was. So, But I, I think the idea that um, Ireland could go there um, and beat a team, an England team, with Finney and uh, Wright and all these legends, you know, was just extraordinary. Um, and I, I, for that reason, those guys like Peter Farrell, Con Martin, uh, were heroes, to us, you know, they were folk heroes in in around the city. There was two League of Ireland players in the team, um, and you know, Dublin was a great footballing city, great soccer city, um, street players, and all those guys that I hung around with. You know, um, it was a phenomenal kind of uh, idea that we could we could beat England. Wow! But it was not there was nothing nationalist about it. That's the point I'd be making. It was just a sporting thing. Was, was there ever uh, the idea that Irish football meant something a little bit different from English football? I mean, English football. Yes. So what, what, were the, what were the differences? Well, the defining things in Irish players really were often, there were a lot of them very small <laughs> Irish guys. Uh, George Cummings, uh, for example, played for Luton. George was a tricky little inside forward. He's my f- favourite player. We had players, you know... Um, like that, um, there was a guile about the way Irish footballers generally uh, played, um, and then that the, it was a passing game. We we didn't do brute strength. We didn't have a Nat Lofthouse, who was a great giant English centre forward. Tommy Lawton, the great English centre forwards. We didn't have one of those. We used to have to turn to Charlie Hurley and Noel Cantwell, who were defenders, and put them up centre forward to do a bit of that stuff. But the Irish pl- play would be Joe Haverty, little left winger, you know, would be deft, guile, passing. Um, and that would be Giles. John would have grown up with that idea, you know, for example. And he was a great sort of folk hero in his when John was young. You know, when he was about 12, <laughs> everyone in the city knew about him, but no one had seen him, you know. Yeah. But it, it was a kind of classic Irish street footballer. It was a street game here, you know, in a certain kind of way. Uh, and, you know, uh, that was kind of, it was our guile and wit, if you like, against the strength, muscle and power of of English, a classic English team. Not that they didn't have players like Matthews and Finney and Wilf Mannion. Mm. They did, but they had the Billy Wrights uh, and the Nat Lofthouses and the Tommy Lawtons, Dixie Dean. A lot of their folk heroes in soccer were big, strong guys, you know? Yeah. They, I mean, the thing that you were saying there about how, you know, everyone knew John Giles, nobody had seen him. I mean, this was 
this is a case a lot just because, I mean, who's going to see football on television in the 1950s yeah. in Ireland? So this, uh, in 1957... Uh, the England team came here. I think you yeah. wrote, wrote something similar about the Busby Babes as well when they yeah. when they played here. Just the the actual excitement. Same of seeing, year, seeing these kind of legends in, oh, in person. Yeah, I mean, I couldn't get into the Ireland England game. Couldn't because it was a lift over the style job, and I couldn't get one that day. Um, Sorry, so you turned up at Daily Mount. Turned up at Daily Mount from Dumcounter, which was only a ten minute walk, or, uh, and it was only a two minute run because I ran all the way home. <laughs> but you, you tried to get a lift over the style. Um, and lots of p- people who would oblige. But on the really big matches, sometimes, some days he didn't make the cut. So leg it back to the house and listen to the radio. Um, and um, I got in for the Manchester United game. I got a ticket, which is <laughs> But the Manchester United game in 57 was, wow. You see Duncan Edwards and all these guys. You see, we'd never seen a football match. You only got a bit of Pathé, Pathé News. I never saw a football match at all in England mm. until I think we got started getting the cup finals. My aunt, my rich aunt, had a little black and white television in Walkinstown and we used to make what was then a cross-country journey from Drungonda <laughs> to Walkinstown and you see, but it was all speckled and you couldn't... Pro- that would be the first cup final I saw was 1958, I think. Uh, Manchester United uh, losing um, and Matt Lofthouse bundling Harry Gregg. I know Ray Wood into the net for a goal uh, after Munich. So that was... But we didn't know anything growing up. I started playing f- soccer before I ever saw an English match at all. The all, all we had was the League of Ireland, but the League of Ireland was wonderful in those days. 1957, yeah. you didn't get your lift over the styles. No, you ran, ran home. And what we needed that day was to beat England and we qualified for the World Cup. Um, and we were 1-0 up with... It was just extraordinary. Uh and with, in, the, in the last minute, Tom Finney got the ball and he went down the right wing, crossed the ball, and a fellow called John Atteo, who played for Bristol City, um, or certainly was a Bristolian uh, from Bristol, scored. And there was just, it was just the most extraordinary thing. Philip Green didn't know what to say. There was no applause in the ground. I was sitting there crying. We were just dead. Last minute, England again. It's just, it was, I'd love, I know you have the piece. We have the piece. I'd love to hear it because that's my memory of it is, is the shock in Philip Green's voice and the silence. We'll have a listen to it now. This is Philip Green commentating for RT Radio on the late England equaliser. A goal kick to Ireland. One minute left for play. Ireland leading 1-0. 1-0. One minute left for play. And the crowd roaring, listen to them. Flags, strikers all over the ground as Godwin kicks out away to the right. Ringstead is there. Ringstead jumping for it, beating the man Englishman. The English in attack now. John stops him. John for Ireland. He to Whelan. He to Simons. Ireland coming away. He to Haverty. Way up into the centre. Stopped there by Clayton of England. Clayton out to the left. Clayton has it for England again. England dangerous. All to Finney. Oh, to Finney, they're playing last time. Time is up as Finney comes back for England. Finney and Sayward. Finney centering now for England. Back to centre. He's going in. He's going in. He's beaten Sayward. He's beaten Sayward. He crosses. And it's a goal. It's headed in by Atio in the last overtime. Overtime. Finney now tackled there by Sayward. 15 seconds overtime. And a goal to England. Scored by Atio. From Finney's cross. <laughs> Your recollections of that commentary are pretty uh, accurate. That's incredible commentary. Yeah, it's like, whew. I mean, and all those names you mentioned, Artifit Simons, little guy, uh, Joe Haverty was playing that day. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, that, that, that was a deep, deep, deep shock to uh, everybody. <laughs> we, we didn't get over it for weeks. Uh, it was terrible. I mean, it's like... That's why I think football and sport in general, but soccer, all, all sport, of course, but the effect it has on kids when their team loses is deep. The, deep. So you, you were saying earlier that the, uh, you know, this, this is a game played in the, in the cities at that time and you felt yeah. like a minority. Did it feel like a, an embattled minority sometimes oh, yeah. within, within the country itself? I mean, not only oh, totally. in England, but no. then you might have GAA rugby people turning around and saying, well, you know, what do you expect? No, they used to say we were couriers. 
No, I mean, they used to basically soccer. I mean, Liam Brady, uh, Ray Tracy as well. Liam was actually picked to play for the Irish schoolboy team. Uh, and um, the school had a friendly gar match. And Liam refused to play for the, for the school because he wanted to represent his country at schoolboy soccer. And he was kicked out of the school before his inter. He was kicked out of the school for playing in a... He was expelled for playing for Ireland. Did you not know that? I didn't know that, no. Ray Tracy was battered in Westland Row uh, for the same thing. Oh, soccer was a despised game here. It was despised um, as a game for, you know, working class people, the undeserving poor. And also, more importantly, for what they call Shonen men, uh, that was people who loved Britain. Because it was the English game, it was the foreign game, uh, as opposed to all the other games. Rugby, you see, was posh, so there was no problem there. Uh, hockey was posh, there was no problem there. But soccer was regarded, soccer people were regarded as as, as shonen men. And if you have to go to your dictionary, do you know what a shonen is? No. Yeah, well, a brit lover. Right. Uh, and not a real Irish person. It's a carry expression. I remember the great... I, when I started in Sunny Independent, I went the great Kerry uh, team. <laughs> That's Mick O'Dwarnhurst. Yeah. And uh, what you doing down here, you Shawnee man? <laughs> right about our game, you know. But they were only joking. Yeah. But it was very, very... Yeah. Edmund did... Um a sense of fatalism kind of start creeping into the Irish football psyche because you talk about that 57 match in a game that Ireland could well have won. Uh, ultimately, from then until 88, there were a series of, a couple of draws, mostly defeats. Was there a feeling that us Irish football folk are never going to have our day against England? Uh, I think, yeah. I mean, the odds were stacked against us anyway. It was their national game. We were a small country. Um, we never quite had... Uh, enough good players uh, to to make up a team. I mean, I played in the same team as John Giles, which wasn't fair on John. <laughs> you know, and so you'd have like great players like Tony Dunn, John Giles, uh, Noel Cantwell was a wonderful player, great player. Um, even someone like Andy McAvoy, who was top scorer in the first division for Blackburn. When I made my debut, I was playing in Paris. We only lost 1-0 to Spain. But they had to carry guys like me. You know, uh, and there'd always be two or three weak links, uh, or maybe more. Uh, so we always had wonderful players, but we never had enough of them, uh, really. Your own life over there, when you um, mm. you, you are kind of living the, living the dream, becoming a professional player, but you obviously went over to England very young. Um, and did the, was it ever? Did you ever feel it was difficult to fit in? Were there things that you had to do? Did you change your accent? Did you sort of... Uh... I, did, I did a little bit, funny enough. I did change my accent. Um, I have a funny, funny memory of that. I'll tell you in a minute. Uh, first of all, I went on my 15th birthday, but um, I was quite impressionable. And I did change, lose my accent, which was the absolute cardinal sin. <laughs> I mean, Liam never did, John did, but I did a little bit. Um, and uh, I came home one summer. I've been there two years, and I was seventeen, I think. I'm trying to get into a dance, and like <laughs> there was a, a ballroom called the Four Provinces, the Four P's. It was the place to go, mm. and uh, they had bouncers in those days. Uh, it was really, um, and the bouncers in those days were um, heavy duty guys. They are today, but it was less organised, and uh, I think they kept the money themselves. But. Uh, <laughs> Anyway, I said I decided that I'd pretend. The guy said no, and I decided I'd, I'd pretend to be an English tourist. I was with my two pals. <laughs> Leave this to me. So I, in an English Manchester accent, I said, "What's going on?" He said, Eamon, will you go home?" <laughs> we didn't get in. Anyway. <laughs> it's a small city, <laughs> but I, I kind of I liked England. It liberated me from. Um, first of all, I was going to a country where I had a chance in, at level playing field as a working class person. Um, secondly, there was none of this shonen stuff. There was none of this, you know, soccer people aren't real people. They're, you know, um, there was apartheid in sport here, and we were the, on the wrong side of that. Was there no sense that 
as an Irishman in England. I did You feel that the class thing suddenly was not an issue for you anymore, and that was no, great. But that but was that, huge. That, Was there an Irish English well, problem at all? Yeah, but not not for me. There wasn't. No. no, I loved England because England was a democracy. Uh, they had a national health service. Everyone got a chance to go to college, which I was denied as a working class person. Um, uh, everyone had. It was a meritocracy. If you did your stuff, if you worked hard, you got your due. Uh, and this place wasn't a meritocracy. It was. It was. A, it was a dump. It was a. Uh, it was culturally retarded, um, and maybe still is to some extent. But certainly, um, you know what happened in soccer here. Um, don't forget, uh, no Taoiseach would ever go to a soccer match. Uh, and one or two presidents did. Oscar Trainer was a fantastic man, you know. He braved it out. He, but he had earned his spurs. He was an IRA volunteer and had, you know, seen active service. And he resisted the prejudice. And he was a very big, a bit of a hero because he was involved with the FAI. But uh, you, Sean T. O'Kelly, the president, would come out to some of the matches. But you never see De Valera. And there was the famous thing in 1955 when Archbishop McQuaid. Uh, Arnold playing Yugoslavia, and he um, issued an edict, and there was a letter read out from every pulpit uh, the Sunday before the match. Uh, you go to this game on the pain of a, uh, excommunication type of stuff. So there was a tyranny, a cultural tyranny here um, that we all felt extremely keenly. And that goes back to John and me and Liam and Ray and everyone, really, who played. Um, and going to England... Liberate, liberated us from that tyranny. Did you then try to take that further and stay away from the Irish community in Manchester and subsequently in London, or did you jump in? Did you, go, did you do the whole no, thing? Did you hit the Irish bars? And I didn't. Those? No, I, I, I decided I wasn't going to be um, a... I wasn't going to get involved in nationalism of any form. I, I was not a nationalist. I was a person. Um, my own country had treated me badly, and, and the likes of me, uh, very badly, the people I loved. Um, so I wasn't going to be waving any green flags, but I was, at the same time, I was going to work hard at my job and take my chances. Um, I was a scholarship boy, you know. I, was, I, couldn't get a, I couldn't get a look in here. One year of second-level education, you know, it was a joke. And I was top of the class, top three in my class at primary school all the time. That couldn't have happened to me in England, and I was aware of that. So it was a radicalising experience growing up here for me. And I found England and the aspirational politics, particularly of the British Labour Party at the time, um, but even of the Tories at the time. There were moderate uh, conservatives like Ian Cloud in 1962. They wanted to liberate the colonies. They wanted to do, you know, brave things. Uh, so I thought England was a fantastic place, of a land of opportunity. And I wasn't the only one. There were an awful lot of Irish people went there to work on building sites uh, and in factories. Not uh, everybody had such joyous experiences, though. Well, I didn't have a joyous experience. I, was, I had, you know, I was a journeyman footballer. I mean, most of my experiences as a footballer were failure, playing in the lower divisions. But it wasn't a joyous experience. What I'm saying is I was liberated from some of the tyranny that a working-class kid grew up with in this country. And that working class kids are still growing up with in this country. And that football liberated me from that tyranny and English football. Uh, I went into it with the same chance as everybody else. Well, when you did play for Ireland then, um, you know, there's this kind of cliches about how it's the proudest thing for any player to put on their yeah, shirt. It, it wasn't what did that shirt actually mean for you? Who did you think you were, you were playing for? Because it sounds as though you had a few kind of bones to pick with, uh, with the country, you know, certainly on an institutional yeah. kind of level. I, I didn't. I felt I was a professional footballer, playing for um, as a professional player. Uh, I didn't think playing for Ireland was the greatest thing that ever happened to me because I didn't believe in the green shirt, and I didn't believe when I used to listen to the national anthem. I thought the national anthem. I knew what the words meant, and I didn't like that kind of militaristic thing. Uh, I didn't like it, um, and. I was often with Joe Kinnear standing beside me. I mean, Joe was the original guy who said, after, after they played our national anthem, he said, uh, 
was that ours or theirs? <laughs> but I didn't. We didn't care about. That. I didn't care about that stuff. I wasn't a flag waver. I think that was. I think that is um, affectation in many cases. And I'll tell you one story that proves it. On the Saturday after Bloody Sunday, when the paratroopers murdered those people in Derry, I wore a black armband for Millwall in an away game at Norwich, and I wore it in training all week. And I rang all the paddy whackery merchants who were playing in England at the time, who were always saying how great it was to play behind that. And I said, come on, lads, we have a chance here to show solid solidarity with these people who have been murdered by English soldiers. We have a chance to do something here. And they all put the phone down. So these were other Ireland other Internationals. Ireland yeah, guys would be coming home and hanging out around Croke Park and saying what great, you know, what great Irishmen they were. So they weren't. I think, you know, the idea that patriotism is the last refuge of the scoundrel or the first uh, isn't new. I do want to And it's there for a reason. What happened to you when you, when you weren't Armband? Because I think it was... Um, Nothing I happened was, to I me. Was, well, I was, a, I was at Fulham earlier on this season when they played Sunderland and James McLean came on uh, with a few minutes to go. And this would have been just quite, quite shortly after he had not worn the poppy, you know, yeah. on the shirt. And this is Fulham. I mean, it's a pretty, pretty sort of yeah. genteel kind of a ground. And uh, he was, you could hear him getting booed. I don't even know if it was Sunderland fans or the Fulham fans, but a couple of weeks later, they were still kind of remembering it. So I'm just wondering, a week after this event, you know, you come out wearing a black armband and then nothing happened. No, nothing happened. I, and I, I, I could perhaps say, Ken, that the poppy is a very revered symbol um, to English people. I like James McLean. I like his rebellious streak. And I admire him for not wearing it if he didn't feel it's not his cultural allegiance. Uh, but I do also understand what the poppy means to working class people in England and indeed to all people in England uh, for the dead of the wars. So uh, they're not exactly alike, um, to be fair to James and to be fair to the English. Um, but the point I was trying to make was that sometimes, you know, the best way you could be an Irishman in, in in, in my view, in England, was to do your job properly um, and respect the culture you were in. You said back in 1957, uh, and even before that, in the, the big victory in the 1940s, that the tales from that were all about sporting success, that there wasn't a, an anti-English sentiment really going on. It was just Irish football people getting their moment and almost getting yeah. it again in 57. When it came to 88, 90, uh, yeah. and, and around then, 91, like those qualifiers in the, uh, around 91, was that still the same? Was it still purely sporting, the joy we took there? Well, my belief, Owen, and it's a fascinating period and it's a fascinating question and it's fascinating to talk about it. I think soccer was hijacked uh, when Jack arrived and we qualified for 88. I think the mob took over and that the scoundrels got on board uh, and that the soccer people, first of all, I don't think the soccer community here ever bought into Jack in any meaningful way. I know some of them hated the football because it was... It was brutal and crude and anti what the Irish game had always been about um, but what happened then was everyone got on board uh, and then it became a cultural phenomenon of quite extraordinary um, potency um, and I've, I've a book coming out in the autumn I don't want to plug it at all but I've written it extensively about what it felt like to be in the middle of that as a if you like, an, an original f football person. People used to sneer talk me about me talking about real football people, but there are real football people who didn't actually enjoy that, the Charlton years. But there are scoundrels who loved it. Um, and I remember a very, very well-known <laughs> cabinet minister ringing me up who knew nothing about soccer, knew nothing about anything, and telling me in 1990, I think, you better stop, you're wrong about Jack. I won't mention his or her name, but I will in the book. <laughs> I'm not plugging the book by any means. I just want to say that it was different, to answer your question. I think it was very different, and I think it was almost perversely different. Was it xenophobic? Was it yes, it was. was there was it? an element of that in it. Um, I don't think Irish people are by nature xenophobic, actually. Mm. Um, and I think English people can be, ironically, uh, xenophobic about certain things. You know, um, But the... Um, the 1988 thing was a source of great joy to people, and it was maybe amplified joy, but it was a different thing. 
than what we felt um, when we were trying to beat England. It was it was amplified, and if you like, it wasn't quite as pure, perhaps, because people who wouldn't know of the struggle. If you if 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 you, if you take the analogy of apartheid that I use growing up, it, we were on the wrong side of that apartheid. Uh, we were the you know. They discriminated against. Uh, this should have been a liberation, you know. But the very people who were discriminating against us and the soccer community were now on board for Jack. Yeah. And they were out in the streets threatening the likes of me. <laughs> so it, it was ironic. And I'm not, it was, you know, people will look back on Charlton. I was, I'm thinking about this because I, I I'm writing about it. People will look back on the Charlton era as a time of great joy, when they had barbecues and they were in the RDS. I mean, there's a fantastic, fantastically vivid image from the Romania penalty shootout day of John Healy crying yeah, in the RDS. It's absolutely extraordinary. John Healy wouldn't know a soccer ball from uh, a melon. But, <laughs> but I'm not knocking the guy. He was a terrific journalist and he was a really vivid commentator on politics and stuff but when I saw that I thought my god this has touched something in John Healy which I think was about the number of uh, emigrants on the pitch or the children of emigrants mm. and something about his identity which I welcomed, I didn't resent it at all but he certainly wasn't a soccer man, he would have been talking about Shawneen boys you know at some stage in the game but now soccer had delivered him some pleasure and some national pride. And I, I think it probably, in his case, coming from Mayo, which is where he came from, he saw, I think that day there were six uh, children of emigrants in, in that team, which I thought was a great part of the Charlton story, which was largely uh, ignored. Yeah, or, or even sort of, uh, I mean... I resented in some cases. Yeah, you know, and, and English people would sort of have a laugh at the fact that, you know, there was a lot of English accents on our team. Yes. But it was just the, it's kind of the nature of... What Ireland is is kind of spread out in a lot of different countries. Yeah, and that we are a nation that exports our people and have been doing that since the famine. And, uh, so, you know, there is a poignancy about that image of that day and that moment um, that Ireland had not just um, gone to the World Cup with the sons of emigrants uh, hugely important to the team, but they're now in the quarterfinal of the greatest sporting competition on earth. Uh, and, you know, you'd have to be hard-hearted not to be touched by that. We played them so often, played England, I should say, so often around the late 80s, early 90s, I mean, the, the 95 matches the last time we have played them. Everything that surrounded that, everything that happened, has that had any noticeable long-term impact on the football rivalry between Ireland and England or how we view yeah. football matches? Maybe we don't know this until, to, until Wednesday night, I don't know, but have you, have you noticed any change? I kind of haven't, um, I don't think. I think um, Irish soccer supporters, um, there's a, a really awful image from that night of that young boy, do you remember that? You know, yeah. I was actually at home. I was exiled, one of my periods of exile from RTE. <laughs> uh, and I was watching on television. Actually, I was not the match as far as I can remember. But I think most people knew that there was this element uh, in England who were, you know, uh, nothing to do with soccer um, and just were a faction, a marginalised faction who had attached themselves, National Front types, um, extreme right-wing people who would have had an anti-Irish agenda, and that was their chance to go out to play. And I think people have a common-sense view of that, that hooliganism uh, is part of the English thing, and certainly was then. Um, and I don't think it was... I'd say these thugs were, were anti-Irish, but I don't think... We haven't, we haven't taken it personally. No, I don't think so. I, I personally, I don't think so. Do you? No. If we were the only country, or only football team ever targeted by English hooligans yeah. around the time, you might be wondering what was going on. But can I ask just lastly, are you looking forward to the match this week? Yes, I am. I am looking forward to it, although I'm kind of alienated from the Trapattoni regime and uh, I've, I've very little faith in it to the point where, to be honest, like a lot of soccer people, I think, you know, the sooner this guy's gone, the better. 
So that takes a bit of goodness out of it, uh, in a way, because you know that will Wes Hoolan get a game? Mm. Well, you see, Wes is a classic from Dublin, Sheriff Street, from a real soccer family. Yeah. Proper. Mm. And he won't be playing, sitting on the bench. And Tapper Tony will be giving some old guff about why he's not playing, you know, because he can't kick the ball 150 yards. So <laughs> that's sort of that's sort of alienates you. You know, it's your culture. Like, it's our culture. Uh, like, someone goes to see a play and they don't like it and they say, ah, it's disappointing, you know, or go to see a band and they don't do their stuff on the night. Well, this is our culture. You know, soccer is our music. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's been absolutely fascinating okay. having you talking about that. Thanks so much for coming in. That was Eamon Dunphy speaking to us at the end of May, just before Ireland played England at Wembley. It was nice of him to come in and talk about a lot of that in advance of the publication of his book. People can often be reluctant to do those long sit-down pieces. Excuse his own book. If they have a book coming out later on in the year, so we greatly appreciated that. Interesting, Ken, there was a lot of interesting stuff in that, but um, when you asked him about what the Ireland shirt meant to him, uh, not a lot seemed to be the gist of the answer. He talks about the, uh, the affectations of people in this regard. The Saturday after Bloody Sunday, he wears a black armband. He tries to get the Paddy Whackery merchants, as he calls them, some of his international teammates who were playing in England at the time to do likewise. And in his own words, they all put the phone down on him. It probably sums up a lot of what ended up being in the book, I guess, in terms of Eamon Dunphy's attitude. I'm sure you could talk to some other people who, some other Irish people in England at that time who might have had a, a less happy experience. But he's, he seems very thankful for having the shackles that were placed him in an Ireland removed once he went over to England. Yeah. Um, I mean, what you were saying about the shirt, it, I mean, that still goes on to this day. What you're talking about is a piece of cloth, which is used to um, to sort of, well, certainly was used in, in his time. If you read the book, you kind of come across a lot of this just to cow people, to get them in line, to sort of shame them into obedience, you know, the shirt. You've got to do this for Ireland, you know, when oftentimes what you'd be being asked to do is, you know, <laughs> is against your uh, against your instincts. It's not what you want. Um, but, you know, in the sort of guise of obedience to the flag and to the shirt. These are very much in the days when the committee and the Blazers would mm. do their own thing. And uh, some, some of the best stuff. Actual footballers wouldn't get to do very much. Some good stuff about the Blazers in there. Because you, know. you hear a lot about that. You hear about the Blazers in the FAI uh, in the past, you know, extending maybe to the present in some ways. And uh, you've got a general idea of what kind of stuff is going on, but here you've got some specific examples of, uh, of things that happened. That's great having the three of us together, as always at Christmas time, in this lovely, cosy yeah. house out in, the, in an unnamed location in the Irish countryside. And yet again, may I congratulate the three of us on mm. managing to leave the, well, the lesser lights of the second captain's team behind. Ah, uh, well, you know, I just think that... Your Simons, your Marks. Your Marks of this world. I mean, Christmas is a time for charity, of course, and even though obviously... This show is almost exclusively based around the broadcasting skills of, you know, us three. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, what about the little people, the water carriers uh, that make this possible, or at least maybe 1% better than, would, than it would otherwise be? Simon is, of course, too shy and uh, talentless to have featured much on it. <laughs> but our resident turkey strangler and whoopee cushion, Mark Horgan, did host a couple of shows uh, this year. And I think we can all agree that his broadcasting style veered between two extremes. Outrageous meadness. And a really bad Pat, Ke- Pat Kenny impersonation. <laughs> so here's the first clip. Listen to how Mark pronounces the word either in the middle of his question here. Yeah, this is a truly great Barcelona team. With Messi out, Real are going to be looking at Barcelona and thinking these guys are looking vulnerable, Sid. And it hasn't really happened for Neymar either. So, um, <laughs> either. <laughs> so that's the most mean thing Eidol. I've ever heard him say. By a mile. That, the, Neymar, that word came Eidol. in after Neymar. <laughs> So obviously, I noticed it didn't say anything on air at the time, but then sneered him viciously for a number of weeks about it. So the next time he was presenting the show, he went the full 180 degree U-turn and sounded so much like Pat Kenny that it really kind of freaked me out here. We'll be joined by Malachi Clerken and some very big names in the sports literature world. Uh, in the sports literature yeah, world. Beautifully polished. That's real textbook broadcasting. Be joined by Malky Clerken and some very big names in the sports literature world. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, there's ob- there's obvious signs of progression there. You know, sort of like Neanderthal man 
yeah. through to through the the the, the, pre- the present day. Uh, yeah. So there you go. We do hope you've enjoyed the second captain's Christmas sports pudding as mm-hmm. much as we have. I uh, hope you're hopefully you've had your fill at this point. But do check out the St Stephen's Day Turkey Sports Sandwich. Mm, well, give it its full name: the Second Captain St Stephen's Day Turkey Se- Sports. Well, Second Captain's at the Irish Times St Stephen's Day Turkey Sports turkey Sandwich. Turkey Sports Sandwich. Yeah, kind of hard to say that. Well, more than once in a row, a very, and also with a straight face. Very special treat for you before we let you go today. Ken Early has not sung out a Second Captain's at the Irish Times no, show. No, hasn't happened yet. But, but is, is, is it about to mood? change now? It may, and he may just have a special partner for this wonderful duet we'll let Mariah take the first verse here she's over still over there by the by the fire sitting on the couch she's going to stand up for this piece mm-hmm. and uh, really open up those lungs and you can join in then Ken Mariah take it away I don't want a lot for Christmas there is just one thing I need I don't care about the present. Christmas, there is just one thing I need, and I don't care about the presents underneath the Christmas tree. I don't need to hang my stocking there upon the fireplace. Santa Claus will make me happy with a toy on Christmas Day. I just want you for my own. More than you could ever know Make my wish come true All I want for Christmas is you You, baby I won't ask for much this Christmas I won't even wish for snow I'm just gonna keep on waiting Underneath the mistletoe I won't make a list and send it to the North Pole for St. Nick. Won't even stay awake (laughs) to hear those magic reindeer click. Cause I just want you here tonight, holding on to me so tight. What more can I do? All I want for Christmas is you. Masterful, absolutely masterful. That's just magnificent. I never realised that they rhymed Saint Nick with reindeer click. Yeah, he's good. That is good. Very lyrically strong, that song. Happy Christmas, everybody. Hope you enjoyed the show. What is that? It's the second time it's gone off. They never go home. They never go home.